0: Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Hey, everyone. Good morning. My name is Bonnie Lewis, and I am thrilled to be with you today. I am a good friend of Zach's and of the Restore community. I am a spiritual director. I live in Austin, and I'm an author as well. And I love every time I get to come and be with your community. So thank you for having me. Uh, today we're going to be sitting in John 4. We're going to talk about this story called The Woman at The well, And so as I always do, I want to start with a little bit of historical context um, about the book of John. So out of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John is actually the latest to be written. So we will see some things and some symbols and some messages in the book of John that we don't see in the other gospels. And that's just because as people started understanding who Jesus was and what he came to do, and they started understanding understanding their beliefs and their theology, it sort of started forming into what we know. Um, Part of it is what we know today. And so the book of John is the latest gospel to be written. And a big part of the story for the book of John is that it's all about converts from Samaria. So Samaria was... um, a certain belief system the Samaritan beliefs and we will get into it a little bit because the woman at the well is from Samaria um, but this whole book is about how people from that belief system sort of converted into what we know to be um, this belief in the good news of Jesus and so that's a major section of the book of John and another symbol and another message that we hear in the book of John that is very unique is that it refocuses the temple as uh, losing its significance. So temple worship was huge. Um, it was thought to believe that God resided in the temple, that holiness could only be found in the temple. And we see in the book of John sort of this unraveling and this undoing of that idea. And so the good news had begun to spread, and people began um, being converted Um, into believing the good news and that Jesus had come and that he had come and he had died and resurrected and had um, brought this message of redemption and of salvation. And among this group of people was what we now would call a Hellenistic Christian. And a Hellenistic Christian is somebody who converted to the good news, but that was educated in Greek philosophy. And so who this book is written to are a bunch of people that are converting to the good news who have heard the message and who start to believe in it and are trying to figure out this new faith but it's a different group it's a different audience than the other Gospels and so um, like I said we have a group of people in the Gospel of Johns and especially in this story Um that we call Samaritans. And the Samaritans believed a lot of the same things that Jewish people of the day believed, but they differed on one major point. See, the Samaritans believed that Mount Gerizim was actually lo- the location that God deemed as the holiest, that it was where the temple should be, was the holy place, versus Mount Zion, which was the belief that you and I um, often hear about. from first century views. And so they had this big discrepancy because on the one hand, uh, people believed that the Messiah would be from the line of David, that he would come and it would be king. And they have traced Jesus' lineage back actually to the line of David. And then on the other hand, if you're a Samaritan, you actually believe that um, the Messiah was going to be a prophet that it was gonna be somebody that was closer to that of the, the patriarch. So that was more of a mosaic tradition. So we have sort of this divinic covenant idea and we have this mosaic tradition idea and then right smack dab in the middle we have Jesus. And so this, this is actually the point of the story of the women at the well. This is exactly what they are going to be talking about. It is a story about holy places, about holy people and holy things. This story, if we allow it to, can be a story that talks to us about how tightly we hold our beliefs and our doctrines and how much we really shy away from any differences. It's about boundaries that we've set up between the sacred and the secular. And it asks the question, are they serving us? And do they present a picture of God that is true? So let's dive in. We're going to start at verse four. It says, now he had to go through Samaria he is we're talking about Jesus and so he came to a town in samaria called sychar near the plot of a ground of ground jacob and had given his son to joseph jacob's well was there i love that because I actually like to go to Jacob's well right over here. Um, Jacob's well was there and Jesus, um, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well and it was about the sixth hour. If you are reading your Bible and you ever see something in there that talks to you about Jesus's humanity, that he was tired or he was hungry, I want you to stop and take note of it. It just makes this picture of Jesus so real. He was tired. I love that. All right, um, Verse seven, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Okay, I want to stop right there. Notice that she does not have a name. She's just the Samaritan woman, right? She has no name. And so some people wonder about that. Jesus was actually very bold about how much he uplifted and respected women. So the fact that she has no name is not a sign of disrespect. I actually believe it's a literary technique used by the writers to point us to something different. So here, the nameless ones in the Bible are actually sometimes the one that brings the biggest changes. They're the ones that... Usher in something brand new. Now, this is true. If you kept reading, it actually goes to show us that this woman's story actually went and converted an entire village, even though she has no name. So on the one hand, it reminds us that in a society where making a name for yourself is very important, look for the nameless ones in the Bible. They're the people that are ushering in something completely different. Um, But I also think that she has no name because we're talking about a literary structure here of particulars and universals. So sometimes people have a name in scripture and we are diving deep into their story. Who is Mary? Who is Joseph? Joseph. Who am I? Who are you? We each have this story we bring to the table. And so our unique identity is of utmost importance. Our particulars of what makes us tick, of the things we've been through, of the places we've journeyed, they make a big difference. Now, sometimes it's not about the particulars. It's about a universal truth that somebody is trying to teach. So because the entire book of John has this big undercurrent of Samaritans converting, she serves, this woman has no name because she serves as a representation for all Samaritan people. So this story we know, we're going to look at it differently. Instead of looking at it as who she is and what she's bringing and and the things she's involved in, we are going to look at it as a representative picture for the universal truth of how the Samaritan people came to know Jesus as Messiah. So We start here at verse seven and they sort of get into a theological discussion. So that's my other clue that I want to, we have the nameless woman, so probably she's pointing more towards a universal truth versus like her particular story. But then second of all, um, as we go in later in the story, we're gonna see this part where they talk about husband. And what I want us to look at today is that maybe that that could be a symbol because she's a representative picture. We'll dive into that. In a minute, but also a key to looking at biblical stories is if it is about someone's very particular situation, then Jesus is usually, and the writer is usually going to start with that particular situation. They're not going to bury the lead at all, okay? So she would have started talking about the many husbands she had. Then from there, they would sort of get to the universal truth. But First, we start talking about theology, and then he brings in this husband thing as like a metaphor, as a way to bring out more of the theological discussion. So verse 7, when a Samaritan woman comes to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And so then they just start getting into this discussion and says, verse 8, his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then my imparenthesis said, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And so she um, starts to call him out a little bit. She's like, hey, wait a second. Um, you're breaking tradition. Jews don't associate with Samaritans. And also, men would not have asked women for a drink. And so Jesus answers her. He says, "Um, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 11, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw. You have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? Who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did you, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? So, what she's doing there is she is referencing Jacob's well. She is referencing this patriarch. She's referencing, when she's talking about that, she's not simply talking about a certain space. She is talking about an entire theological belief system that she believed in as a Samaritan. And she is asking him, Who is right? Are you a part? of the mosaic line? Are you more like a patriarch? Are we right or are they right? Are you with us or are you with them? And so Jesus plays right into it. (laughs) He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks this water I give him will never thirst Indeed the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So on the outset we have taken that verse and we've put it on a lot of things on pillows on necklaces on mints on bookmarks etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But what he's doing here is so genius because the Samaritan woman is asking him are you part are you who I think you are? Are you part of the page of uh, this like long line of patriarchs, the mosaic tradition, or are you from the Davidic covenant? Which one is it? And she wants him to draw this hard line. Well, commentators say that in that verse, in verse 13, when he says, "Everyone who drinks." of this water will be thirsty again but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst indeed the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life commentators suggest that this is actually very symbolic of exodus 314 when god says i am who i am I will be who I will be. And so what he's doing there is she's asking him, are you one of us? Or are you one of them? And he answers her in her own way, but references Moses. And so when he's doing that, he's making a bit of a claim. He's saying, I see where you're coming from. I see what you believe. I'm going to actually reference Moses in my answer, but I'm gonna give you an answer that you never expect. I'm not drawing the line between either group. I'm not suggesting that they are totally right or you are totally right. Maybe it's something entirely new. Maybe it's something in the middle. And so then verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here. She's taking it literally. She's like, okay, great. I don't want to keep doing this. So give me the secret. And he says, go, call your husband and come back. Now, here's what I want to say about this section. So remember I referenced it before. A lot of times people take this story and they totally reduce it down to this one sentence, to this one part where Jesus says, go and call your husband, right? And so then the woman says, um, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you have now is not, you have, ha- is not your husband. And what you have said is quite true. So a lot of people have taken this and said, this is a wo- this is story, is about a woman Who's had a bunch of different husbands and she can't commit and we don't know why. But Jesus, in all his love, has come and he brings her and he talks to her and brings her water and isn't that great. Now, listen, it might be true. That's probably part of it. I think we can definitely get that from this story. But given the fact that she's a nameless woman, means that this story is bigger than her particulars. And also, remember when we said if it was about her and her husbands, we would have started with that. The way that the Greek is always put is that the main part of the story is up front. So they started with this discussion on theology. So this discussion about husbands is actually here to serve the theology discussion. So I think he might be talking in symbol. I think he might be talking in metaphor, and I'll explain why. But the reason why it matters, the reason why it matters if we get this right As I am all for, as you've heard me preach before, and as you hear Zach preach all the time, I am all for the message of Jesus, that he comes and he eats with the sinners and the tax collectors, that he reaches out a hand to people that he never would, that he might disagree with. I am all for that. But sometimes there's a layer underneath that shows us why he does those things. It's not just because we're all welcome, but I think he has something to teach all of us. It's very easy to slip into a mentality of, I am going to talk to that person or I'm going to help them as if we're doing something good, right? So let's look at what's under that and see what else is there. See what else can be uncovered in addition to it. <clears throat> so let me just really fast, let's talk about why I think that when she talks about her husbands and he talks about her husbands, that that is actually a metaphor. So if she's a representative figure, because she, she's a nameless woman here, and she's representing all of Samaria coming to know Jesus as the Messiah. And so we say, okay, then I'm going to take what they say here as everything more symbolic in nature. Then the use of husbands points to a universal So the Johanian community, which is just a fancy way of saying (laughs) the people that the book of John is talking to, um, oftentimes are referred to. And throughout John, we hear a lot of metaphor. We talk about the bride of Christ. And so that Christ's bride um, are everybody who believes in him. And so when he is saying this to her, this husband metaphor would make a ton of sense because he is referring to her and is saying, instead of husbands, what if that meant beliefs, right? So when he actually, husband is therefore a reference to her belief of God, that maybe she's a woman that didn't have these five physical husbands. Maybe she is a woman that had all these different beliefs about God, yet none of them were completely true, and so when Jesus says to her, You have no husband, he's actually talking more about false worship. You don't have the right picture of me, of who I actually am. Okay. And so let's go back. She says, I have no husband, verse 17. And he says, you're right when you say that. The fact is you've had five and the man that you have now. So the fact is, is that you have believed all these different things and the things you believe now is still not who I am. And so what you have said is quite true. Maybe you personally as the woman, but also as your system of belief that you belong to as a whole. That's what he is saying. And so verse 19, she says, sir, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. So she's like, I can see that you are from the Mosaic line. You are acting like the patriarchs did. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain so she's, t- she's referencing the mountain that they believe in. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So she's like, I can see that you're speaking my language, that, you, that we are right. She's missing the point, as most of the people do. And she's saying, but I don't get it because you say that we have to worship here. And I say that we have to worship here. And it's clear that you understand me and that you believe in me. So we're right. You belong to us, right? They're wrong right? That's what she's saying. And he says, verse 21, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. You have no husband. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. So he's saying, but we worship that we do know the holy place was here. This is where the temple is. This, this is, they are doing what they have always done. Yet, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit. In truth. And so he's saying the time is coming when neither one of you will do what you're doing now. You will no longer have no husband. You will no longer worship on this mountain. They will no longer worship in the temple. Remember when we said that one of the themes of the book of John is that temple worship is sort of losing its significance. Because one of the most beautiful things that Jesus did was say, hey, Every time you can find holiness to that building or that person or that voice, you've missed it. You make me smaller and smaller and smaller and you miss that I am holy all around. And so see, that matters because the reason why Jesus eats with the tax collectors and the sinners, the reason why he reaches out to a Samaritan, to women, when everyone else in society didn't, the reason why I preach so much about this and Zach preaches so much about this is not merely because it's the nice thing to do. Because if you and I are honest, that's such a low bar for the Messiah, right? Like he was just being super nice. (laughs) The reason why he does it and the reason why we're called to do it is because holiness is everywhere. Is because on some level, all of us hold wrong beliefs and we have something to learn from each other. We are all made in the image of God. So I have holiness in me and so do you and the people that are different from us, the people that look different, act different, believe different. And on some level, a time will come where we realize, gosh, all that arguing, we maybe missed the whole point. So, verse 23, 25, she says, The woman said, I know that Messiah called, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. She's still, she's still missing it. And so, when he comes, he will explain it. So, she's basically like, Okay, never mind. You're not a prophet. I actually don't know who you are. But when the Messiah comes, he'll get it. And then so Jesus, in his goodness and in his sassiness and in his humor, he replies to her and he uses that line. And he says, I who speak to you am he. And again, it's a reference to I am who I am. And so he says, you just keep missing it. But so do they. So there's going to come a time... When they realize they are wrong, you realize you are wrong, and we will all realize that holiness is absolutely everywhere. So in all stories, but especially in ones that are highly symbolic in nature and that are heavy with symbolism, we have to ask ourselves, what does this story do in us? I think that this story is absolutely about sitting with people that are not like us. It's about reaching our hand out to people that society tells us not to. But I think it's also a reminder that sometimes we ascribe holiness to a very certain place, a very certain person or voice of authority, a very certain thing. And Jesus warns us of that. And says, ah, when we spend all of our time and all of our energy making this belief system we have, making this holiness that I have brought into the world, the regeneration of all things new and beautiful, when we reduce it to this very small thing, we miss the point. See, she wanted him to say she was right and they were wrong. And Jesus just refused to draw a line and said, what if I am so much bigger? So what does this story do inside of you? Where have we ascribed holiness to certain people, places, and things and missed the point? Anytime holiness can be delineated down to that spot, that person, (laughs) that thing, we've missed it. So maybe we need to have a call back into this sort of awe and wonder of this Jesus that is everything, of this spirit that permeates all things, um, of the ways of how much we don't know and that we're continually learning and growing and shaping. Maybe we need to let more of the mystery in more of the wrestling so that we can lay down some of these small boxes that we've made and open up something really beautiful and new. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you that you are so much bigger than we can ever imagine. Thank you that tomorrow we will have different and bigger and more full words to describe you than we do today. May we be a people that keep digging and unraveling and looking at things from different angles, recognizing holiness in other people, that we could recognize our differences as invitations to learn, and that we don't ask you to choose sides. May we instead trust in your vastness and that we can sort of fall into that. We love you, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen.